You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the third edition of the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Glad to have you with us today. Snowy morning in Kansas City took me forever to get the kids to school and find my way back. But here I am sitting at the desk and looking forward to this episode. We are going to start on a study on the book of Colossians in a little bit. But before we do that, I want to jump into something a little bit different that we've not done so far here on the podcast. You know, I meet just a ton of interesting people. Almost everyone you meet is interesting if you ask a few questions. And I meet a lot of ministry people because I love the people who do this. And I would have to say that the stereotype of pastors as being a little dull, a little wonky, um, a little uninspired, just to be honest, that stereotype is expired. Some of the most fun, entertaining people I know are pastoring local churches and working in full-time ministry somewhere. And so this morning, I want to spend a little time talking with my friend Lyle. Lyle Phillips is from Legacy Nashville, where he and his wife Allison are lead pastors and doing just a remarkable job there. And he has just been one of the most fun individuals I've connected with over the past year. So we're going to try and get Lyle here on the phone and see if we can connect, talk a little bit about what's happening in Nashville before we move on to our study in Colossians. Good morning, Lyle. Good morning, Randy. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing awesome, man. Thank you. It is snowing here in Kansas City. I'm assuming (laughs) it's not in Nashville. Uh, Negative. It is not snowing here in Nashville. Praise God. Nashville stops when it snows, doesn't it? It does. Uh, A lot of folks who live in our plants and from Texas and LA and they do not know even snow so the whole city just shuts That's down fun. basically it's hilarious you know I grew up in Kentucky where snow in the time was pretty normal most people had big trucks so snow was like fun you know we got out didn't mind go grocery shopping here in Nashville the whole city shuts down so it, it's so funny to me now, we have an interesting origin story because we met in an Uber. Yes, we did. That's right. Like, that makes us sound so well-traveled, doesn't it? My friend Lyle, who I met in an Uber. Yes. Um, I love we were that. In, we were at the same event in Manhattan, and yes. we were leaving at the same time, and you and Allison were headed to LaGuardia, which where I was headed, and we just kind of jumped in the car and had not met at the event, and we talked for the entire time to LaGuardia, which takes forever. Yeah, it was such a long trip, but I was so grateful to, like you said. It was fun. It is. It's such interesting people just by asking a few questions. Especially just by jumping in random people's Uber, but uh, it was good. It was good. (laughs) It really was. Lyle and his wife, Allison, are lead pastors in Nashville uh, on the east side at a church called Legacy Nashville. And we have stayed connected since then. I've got great appreciation for you. Now, let me give you, I feel like I am excellent at uh, summing up people instantly. Now, the truth is I'm (laughs) probably terrible at it, but this is what I think about you based on a long Uber ride. 
and uh, just kind of watching you and talking to you a couple times over the past couple of years. One is uh, that you have tapped into the joy of the Lord. You seem happy most of the time. <laughs> I two, love that. I too, I see you are deeply committed to your wife and family. And let me just say, you're a younger guy than me, which increasingly more people are younger than me. <laughs> but I love that. I love that you figured that out early. Like you, you oh, Did you man. just surprise your wife with a trip to Disney? I did, yeah. We, uh, we went down to Disney World for her 30th birthday. Your wife is 30. How old are you, Lyle? I'm 35. So I won. I need, to, I, I need to go lay down for a while now that I realize <laughs> the youth with which we are dealing with here. So you're, you're tapped into the joy of the Lord. You're deeply committed to your wife and your family. Two kids and one on the way. Is that right? That is correct. We spent a three. One on the way coming June of this year. Come on. Now, you have a boy and a girl right now. We right? do, yeah. Um, our son is Isaiah, and our daughter is Jeremiah, but we call her Remy. She's cute as a bug. Oh, my, oh my gosh, word. man. She really is. Yeah, daughters, it's a whole different ballgame. I had three boys before I got into daughters, and uh, it changes everything. Wow. I'm learning that. Like, she is way <laughs> more spoiled than my boy is. Yeah, entitled, entitled. So the, <laughs> the three things that you tapped into the joy of the Lord, you committed to your family. And the other thing I pick up on you is I think when the in grade school, when the teacher told you to color in the lines, you colored on the walls. Absolutely. That is 100% me. Your assessment is pretty spot on. <laughs> it, what's, what's frightening is, is I think I'm always right. And so sometimes <laughs> I completely blow it. But I think in this case, I'm right. So how did a happy family-oriented, artsy guy, end up pastoring in East Nashville. You were in Africa first, weren't you? I was, yeah. So um, you're familiar with uh, Heidi and Roland Baker and Iris Global? Yeah, right. So that's where I really got my start. Um, I had attended their mission school in 2009, so 11 years ago. Um, I moved to Africa for three months, and vowed that I would never go back because I thought missions was not for me. I wanted to be a traveling uh, itinerant preacher, you know, God's yeah. man of power for the hour. You know, that's you're like, what I You're thought. like the rest of us. You wanted to be Corey Russell. Absolutely, man. I love Corey Russell. Who doesn't want to be Corey Russell? Absolutely. I loved him, still love him. Don't know him, but I really appreciate his ministry. I know he's with Upper Room now, but uh, yeah. I would watch... T.D. Jake's DVDs, and uh, I wanted to preach the house down like T.D. Jake's, and so I had no interest in going back to Africa or doing much mission work at all because I wanted to be a traveling preacher, but God, as he often does, had a different plan and sent me back to Africa where I served um, off and on for a number of years and then relocated full-time uh, to India where a team and I pioneered Iris India, which was in wow. Andhra Pradesh. And so I was in and out of India for about four and a half to five years, I think it was. you started an NGO, is that correct? I did, yes. When I was, I want to say I was 24 years old. That sounds about right. I started an NGO called Mercy 29, which doesn't exist anymore. I folded it. Uh, to lean into pastoring our local church here in Nashville. Uh, but yeah, that was primarily aimed at India and rescuing kids from human trafficking. 
Now, just for, because I always wonder how I'm entrepreneurial and wonder how Absolutely. things get done. How hard was it to start an NGO in India? Oh, my goodness. You know, there's a lots of challenges, but I will say this, like all that we were able to do over there was 100% Jesus. And the reason I know that is because I had no clue what I was doing. Like, absolutely. <laughs> you mean at 24, no you didn't clue. have it figured out? I thought I did, but the That's truth even worse. is I had nothing figured out. Nothing at all. And uh, I, I mean, I still thought I was God's man of power for the hour. You but, you know, I, I may have been in my own right. You know what I mean? But God humbled me through that missions work and kept me uh, in India for quite some time until I fell in love with it. You know, yeah. people talk about India as being this uh, place of extremes. And it is. And most people hate it. Some people love it. And I was one of those folks that just absolutely loved it. I was obsessed with India. I, you know, I wore those man skirts and I ate oh. with my hands. And, you know, I mean, I, I went all the way. You in, went bro. full Indian. Full Indian. I full was, Indian. I had an Indian name, which was Raju Babu, which means the king's son. I think I'm just going to call you Lyle. I can't pronounce that. That, yeah, you don't have to worry about that because. I, you know, it's been a long time since somebody has referred to me as Raju Babu. I bet, I bet it has. So how did you end up, you're in love with India, you're serving there, and how did you mm -hmm. end up in Nashville? So I lived in West. Did I lose you, Randy? I am back now. So All right, uh, I'm let me, sorry. That let me was ask me. again, how did you end up in Nashville? Yeah, so um, I'm from West Kentucky, where my parents pastor a church in Owensboro called Legacy. And, um, and so the reason why uh, I moved to Nashville was because I wanted to get in a larger city where I could start a discipleship school for missionaries to build up my team to take more folks with me to India. That was why I moved here. And then after a few months... Uh, we were opening up a living room for corporate worship, and that became like 80 people, like mm. hanging out the front door, worshiping in other rooms of the house. And um, it, I kind of had one of those moments of like um, sheep without a shepherd, you know, who's yeah. going to look after this flock? And I felt God invite me into pastoring in that season. And so um, I shifted my focus from, you know, probably 90% India, 10% Nashville, because I had a team here who was helping uh, to start the local expression. And I shifted it, flip-flopped it to about 90% Nashville, 10% India. And so that's really what's led, led me to where I am today of actually pastoring a local church. So when did you launch uh, Legacy Nashville? We launched Legacy Nashville. I, I like to say our launch date is when we started Sunday mornings. And that was yeah. in... That was actually on September the 11th, 2016. Okay. So not that long ago. Not that long ago. Now, we, when I moved here, I moved here in 2011. And originally, we were doing something called Iris Nashville with Iris Global, where we had the living room expression and we did some outreach and things like that. And then we started Legacy Nashville, the local church, January 1st, 2016. 
But as our mutual friend, Banning Liebscher, loves to remind me that we did not actually launch our church until we had a Sunday morning. (laughs) (laughs) Banning's rules. Yeah, man. I mean, Banning has really coached me and helped me make that transition from missionary uh, to pastor because the very first time I ever hung out with Banning, and Banning just has this way of challenging you yeah. uh, that's so good and that hurts yeah. in all the right places, right? And he right. Told and if me, it wasn't good, you wouldn't call him anymore. But exactly. It is good. It's good. It's good. We were hanging out at a Benihana uh, restaurant, actually, which was where Banning and I first uh, spent any time together. And he said, are you going to be a missionary or are you going to be a pastor? Because your leadership lid is just not big enough to do both. And, and, you know, initially I was offended. I was like, yeah. who are you to make right. that assessment? You don't know me. I'm awesome. It's, it's not like you don't have an international ministry and conference ministry in a church. I know. Banning, who do you think you are, bro? I am God's man of power for the hour. You know, I was still in that vein. and uh, But I knew it was true. I knew it was true. Banning was right. And uh, so that's when I really took that big step back and started to focus locally on Nashville. So, you know, a Midwestern guy... My, mm-hmm. most of my life. I uh, grew up in North mm-hmm. Dakota, lived in East Tennessee for a while, uh, but Amazing. more of a uh, rural area. East Tennessee and Nashville are different countries. They are. Um, there's East Tennessee, there's Nashville, and then there's uh, East Arkansas is, is the <laughs> west part of it. Um, so, but it's very different. What is unique about reaching Nashvillians? I mean, it's, it's an interesting city, but what, what is unique about ministering there? Oh, man. Um, I, I think what you'd expect, right? They call Nashville the buckle of the Bible Belt. And so it's a very religious city uh, historically. Um, there are a lot of professing Christians here, and there are a lot of older denominational churches. And so reaching those who are already reached is a challenge within itself because we have a lot of nominal Christians in our city, people who oh, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus, I'm a Christian, but they don't go to church. They're not actively being discipled. They're not discipling anybody. They don't share their faith. Um, you know, they're not, they're not actually doing anything that we find uh, disciples doing throughout Scripture, but, you know, they are, air quotes, saved. And so that presents a challenge. People are complacent, right. comfortable, and apathetic towards the gospel in Nashville, by and large, in my experience. But then we also have the challenges of the new Nashville. Nashville is rapidly changing. I think it's probably still in the top 10 of quickest growing cities in our nation. And so we have a lot of transplants who do not have uh, that classic uh, Christian education. They did not grow up uh, being taken to church by their parents and grandparents. And so we have the new challenges of... um, the, the secular humanism uh, culture and uh, the extreme progressivism uh, that we find in some circles of people who call themselves Christians because they're burnt out uh, on the classic and more extremely conservative uh, style of Christianity. Yeah. So all of these um, all of these challenges are are day to day challenges for us here at Legacy. Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm in this episode, I'm also going to be uh, starting a little study in Colossians. And, uh, you know, the church at Colossia, uh, Colossia that um, was so open to so many different ideas, didn't necessarily reject the gospel, 
but mm. didn't see how it stood in contrast with every other philosophy. Oh my goodness. That's good. And That's and so in, in Nashville, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Jesus loves me, you know, saying the songs, Jesus take the wheel, but yep. it, it doesn't, uh, um, it doesn't seem to conflict with any other mentality that they bring with them or that they discover. Exactly. It's kind of open to everything. Truth is relative. I mean, these are things we're witnessing with a lot of young folks um, who are they're they're kind of like they'll come to church from time to time. They'll associate with Christianity when they feel like it. Um, they'll surely talk about it and post about it quite a bit. But at the end of the day, um, it's just kind of everything mixed up in one pot. And uh, and Jesus is great uh, when he loves me and uh, not quite sure that he meant what he said whenever I'm challenged by him. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I had a friend that pastored on the north side, and his uh, his church would balloon and mm. shrink, and balloon and shrink. Um, it would balloon with uh, people in the entertainment industry, mm-hmm. and then as soon as he took a clear stance on something, he would lose half of them. Wow! And wow. back up, and and he was like, "It's just the cost of doing business in Nashville." Now it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be that way, but that certainly was his experience. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because Nashvillians being so transient and um, and also so many folks moving here because they want to be the next big thing. Uh, they're so attracted to the new big thing. So church hopping and 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 mm-hmm. moving around to what might be popular on different nights of the week is very normal, uh, particularly amongst young people here. But the big problem with that is the same problem, you know, to use a pastoralist illustration, uh, is removing a flower from its pot every week and, and trying to settle it in a new one never allows them to take any roots, uh, grow yeah. strong or bear fruit. And so we're really trying to hit that day one when we invite people into the church. Hey, here's our next steps classes. And we're going to address some of that right off of the front end. If you expect to grow and uh, have a strong experience with this church, a strong experience will never be the result of a weak covenant commitment. And so we, we really mm. try to hammer that home day one to the folks who come to Legacy. Which might be the most um, revolutionary thing they hear is settle oh, down. Oh my goodness. Calm down, slow down. Patience is right. the fruit of the spirit. And that's not normal in Nashville. You know, everything is as it is in our culture for the most part, microwavable extremely yeah. quick. Um, that, that, those are the expectations that people have. And, and then the merit and the value that they place on influence or fame um, and, and then money as a byproduct of those things is so much greater in many ways than truth, um, prayer, uh, scripture. You know, it's, it, those are the challenges that I see. And I'm, I'm sure you're yeah. facing those in Kansas City, but yeah. those are so normal for us here in Nashville. Yeah. If uh, one quick question, and we'll let you go. But if you could dial the wayback machine about fifteen years back mm. and sit down and have coffee with a twenty-year-old Lyle Phillips, mm. what do you tell that guy? My goodness, Randy. Well, I'm gonna tell you, I wasn't even saved fifteen years ago, brother. I I was um, I was a drug addict fifteen mm. years ago. I was in jail fifteen years ago. Um, jail jail or there for the night no jail, no jail 
Oh yeah, no, not prison, jail. I thankfully, I, I had some. Uh, <laughs> I had the opportunity to go to prison, but you know, thankfully, <laughs> you opted didn't out. Didn't jump on that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Praise God that uh, there was some intervention, and I had parents who stood by me and loved me through my worst worst days. But uh, I would I would probably look at at that 21 uh 20 year old 21 year old and um and I would do everything in my power to remind them of the reality that they were very simply loved and mm-hmm. that that love found its basis in um in Christ's love for humanity and not in my performance my ability to behave or in my capacity to impress my parents or anybody else in this life, but that it would be very, very simple in how I would understand who I am by understanding whose I am. I know that's a little cliche, but I think had I understood that at 20, that my identity was secure because of what Jesus had done for me, that would have been such a game changer because I lived like an orphan, constantly attempting to perform and impress people um, to discern my personal value when I was valuable all along. And if I could wow. grab my face at 20 and press, somehow press identity into my heart, I, I think that's what I would go after. Because I just, you know, I just find that when people know who they are, it really changes their pace. It really reduces their anxiety levels, and it allows them to live from who they are rather than scrambling for who they think they should be. Now, here's the crazy part is 15 years later, that's what you're telling people in Nashville. It's the exactly you, what I'm the telling The thing you people. needed and you found is now what you give away. That's beautiful. It, it, it truly is, Randy, and I pray that God would give me the opportunity to do that with many, many young people, and uh, also with many young um, athletes, I, you know, I have a heart for those kids because that was my story. I um, was a basketball player, got kicked off my team senior year, ended up getting into drugs, ultimately landed myself in jail. That's where we have where I was at 20. And so I yeah. would love to do that more and yeah. more and more as, as long as God allows me to. That's awesome. Well, before we go, let me just take a moment and pray for uh, Legacy Nashville and uh, you and Allison. Um, You guys are, uh, you know, our our contact points have been limited, but you are actually very dear to my heart. I love what I see the Lord doing in you and how you're reflecting him uh, to that city. So, Father, I ask that you would rest on Legacy Nashville, that you would find a place there to rest with your presence and that you would manifest yourself there, that uh, there would be a hunger there for your presence. And that your presence would change everything for young people and transients and musicians, God. Give Lyle and Allison uh, a sense of um, unique purpose there and uh, speak to them on a daily basis about the why they are there and the next steps as you build your church all across the city of Nashville. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Randy, thank you so much, man. I received that blessing. God bless you guys, and uh, we look forward to uh, the new baby, boy or girl. Uh, we don't know yet, and we're, it's going to be a surprise baby this time. Well, I just I want to lay this there for you to pray about. Randy okay. can be a male or female <laughs> name, and I don't yes, want you to feel any can. pressure. 
But even <laughs> now, I will start referring to that child as Randy. <laughs> you know what, Randy? That works for me well, brother, because my son right, just... wants to name the child Greg. And not that Greg <laughs> is a bad name. It's just a surprising <laughs> choice for a four-year-old. It is a surprising choice. Well, you know, we've got 10, and by the time we got to number 10, we're naming them things like Scout. And so, right. <laughs> uh, you know, you just early on, you kind of get your pick of the names. So, um, Randy, I think Randy works. I'll let you break that to Allison. I like that, bro. I like that. All right, bro. It's good talking to you. Thank you, man. Talk to Take you care. soon. Okay, fantastic to talk to Lyle. I, I just think the world of uh, he and Allison, and so fun to hear what God is doing there in Nashville. We're going to dive into our study this morning. If you need to, go pour another cup of coffee. That'd be the fourth one on the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. And open your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We have finished Jonah and diving into Colossians, which was written by the Apostle Paul. We're going to start with a little bit of context this morning and also get into um, some of the actual text, but we're not going to get too far today. I like to start with context. Easiest way to twist a Bible passage to mean what you want it to mean is to ignore the verses before or after or the context in which it was written. I like context. It adds richness, and it keeps us accurate to what the Bible actually means. One of the great books that I have used over the years to kind of help give me some context is by a man named David Pawson, and uh, it's called Unlocking the Bible. Great big thick book, looks good on your desk, looks like you make, makes you very, very smart looking, and you want to have books like that around, at least I do. And Pawson talks about the fact that Paul wrote three kinds of letters, in the New Testament. He wrote to individuals known in the Bible uh, by the name of that individual, he, like Timothy. Uh, he wrote occasional letters to address a particular situation in a church, and he wrote general letters, which were for general circulation and did not deal with a specific group of people alone. When Paul wrote Colossians, it was an occasional letter. He also, at the same time, roughly, wrote an individual letter to Philemon, and a general letter known as Ephesians, although it was uh, intended for circulation through a number of churches. So this is an occasional letter. It addresses a particular situation in a church, but it's a situation that rises up over and over and over again. And these letters, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, they were all sent at the same time with the same postman, uh, Tychicus, sent to the same area. They were probably all written during his first imprisonment in Rome. And the book of Colossians, of course, was written to the church in Colossae. Colossae was in Asia Minor. It was located eh, about 10 miles from Laodicea. Some of you are going, I don't know where Laodicea is either. It's about 10 miles from Colossae, if that helps you. And it was on an important trade route, and it kind of had an international flair to it. A lot of people traveling through. It was quick to assimilate ideas from around the world. And as a result, the city had an intellectual feel on the surface. Okay, It was the kind of place where you would find a lot of coexist stickers. And what I mean by that is there was a, a high value for um, making room for lots of different ideas, and it didn't really think it through to the point to understand that sometimes those ideas cannot coexist. Not that people can't hold opposite ideas and be friends, but the two ideas do not gel with one another. And that was the kind of place that Colossae was. Colossians was not a church that Paul planted or started. You think of all the churches in the New Testament that Paul planted. This was not one of them. In uh, verses 7 and 8, he's talking about the gospel in chapter 1, and he said, You learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. 
He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has been known, made known to us your love in the Spirit. So some of the most powerful people in the New Testament never wrote a book of the Bible and barely got name-dropped, but they changed the world that they lived in. Epaphras was one of these guys. He was a force to be reckoned with, even if we don't read a lot of specifics about him. Paul refers to him a number of times, though he called him a fellow servant, called him a fellow minister, and I think most importantly, at one point called him a fellow prisoner. Even in the New Testament, even at the level of the Apostle Paul, there were no lone rangers in the kingdom, okay? If you can't be Paul, if you can't be the guy in the lead, then maybe it would be the highest calling to be a fellow prisoner of Paul. Find somebody in your life, your Apostle Paul, your Lyle Phillips, your local pastor, and you tell them, hey, if you're going down, I'm going down. I'm going to link arms with you. So at the end of your life, you would look at me and say, you know what, you were with me thick and thin. It's totally antithetical to how we think about church from a consumer perspective, where we go and we, we take what's there for us, uh, kind of like ordering off a menu. No, it's finding a place and diving in and saying, I'm going to lay down roots with this guy. I'm going to make a history with this guy. At the end of Paul's life, he's going to call me a fellow prisoner. Apparently, Epaphras had reported back to Paul on the condition of the church. In fact, he was with Paul at the time that Paul wrote the book of Colossians. And uh, they may have been in prison together at the moment that the book was written. Under Epaphras' input, Paul, as an apostle to the entire church, wrote a letter to the church there that he did not plant to address a diverse heresy or a wrong teaching. And it's apparent that the wrong teaching was so widespread that he doesn't even name it. It's just a known condition. That's what it means to do life in Colossae. Just like Lyle was talking a few minutes ago about, this is what it means to do life in Nashville. This is what it meant to do life in Colossae. Paul addresses them and their problem in general. And he doesn't ever really name it, but I promise you the people of the city knew exactly what he was talking about. It's like when your mom says, we've got a problem. You know the problem. She doesn't have to lay it out to you. And that's kind of what Paul does with them. And as he dives in during the course of the book, he covers a lot of bad practices and a lot of wrong beliefs within the church. Uh, we'll talk about this in coming weeks. He talks about ceremonialism, asceticism, angel worship, uh, really a depreciation of who Jesus is or bad Christology. He talks about the ideas of secret knowledge or reliance on human wisdom, but he does so with great love and great respect for the people. Paul manages to tell them they're wrong and yet still speak to them with affection. We live in a world that only knows how to disagree by demonizing one another, but Paul wasn't like that. He starts out in thanksgiving and prayer, and in verses 1 and 2, he introduces himself, Paul, an apostle, to the saints and the faithful brothers at Colossae, and he starts to pray. Now, why does Paul start to pray? Is it because he has nothing to say at the beginning? No, it's because he has a lot to say. But he understood the wisdom of starting with prayer, because even an apostle needs to pray for people in conjunction with his messaging to them. As a leader... If you have equity in people's lives, you have equity in their lives to the degree that you pray for them. It is your prayer that buys equity in their lives. And Paul starts with prayer. In verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. If you're looking for a church, don't look for one that has a one-size-fit-all life coach. Okay, Look for leaders who will grab a hold of God and get insight about you and for you. 
Now, church is not all about you, but at some level, it should be about our development and growth as well. And praying leaders will develop and grow people and challenge them in the right areas. Non-praying leaders will just continue to preach their mantra. And Paul is a praying leader. Here's what fuels Paul's heart to pray in verses 4 and 5. He says, Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. That idea of faith, hope, and love were the triad that captured Paul's imagination. He talks about a number of places, most well-known in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul had seen it all even before becoming an apostle. He was educated. He was well-traveled. He'd seen violence. He'd seen political intrigue. He'd seen men go to martyrdom at his own hands, and he had had a radical conversion. The thing he returned to in his speaking over and over again, or his writing, was faith, hope, and love. Faith in Jesus. Nothing else works. Paul would have told you that. Love for God and love for one another. Those two things are not in opposition. And hope. Hope laid up in heaven. Not hope that this life is going to get a little bit better, but that there is an entirely better reality coming. Your life in God is not life 2.0. We don't even know life yet until we get to know God. And so he over and over again reiterates the idea in his writings of faith and hope and love and these being the things that matter. Most of us, if we were honest, would admit we have priority problems. We think of them of time constraints because there's a lot of things we say we want to get done, but we don't actually get done. When we really boil it down, it's priorities. That is what dictates what we get done and what we don't. And what captured Paul's imagination were the priorities of faith, hope, and love. And that's what he begins to pray into towards the Colossian church. In verse 6, it continues and says, Which has come to you, as indeed the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So here Paul talks about the power of the story of Jesus, the gospel, and how it is taking over the world and bearing fruit wherever it goes. Every place the story of Jesus touches gets changed. You know, I really think we have too far low expectations of the gospel. We have diluted the power of God to kind of make it believable. It's kind of what we can pull off on our own. You know, come to church and you'll get enough strength to make it to church next week. That's not the gospel. That's like it's like religious Prozac. Just come back and we'll we'll kick the can a little further down the road. The gospel says meet God and he will have an impact on your life and it will bear fruit and it will increase. You will impact others. And there will be an increase in their lives as well. And by the way, let's gather up on Sundays and celebrate. But he is doing the work Monday through Saturday as the gospel goes forward and changes your life. In the whole world, just like in Colossae, the gospel is bearing fruit. Right now in Muslim nations, the gospel is bearing fruit. 
right now in European nations that we have left for spiritually dead, the gospel is still bearing fruit. In our own nation, in high schools and college campuses where young people are embracing the truth of who Jesus is, the gospel is bearing fruit. But wherever it is bearing fruit, it is bearing fruit because it is coming in contact with people who don't know Jesus. Where is the most potential for fruit in your life? It is the place where your life contacts those who don't know Jesus. Because the kingdom is meant to be growing, and there should be fruit everywhere it's growing, the proper picture of the kingdom is more like an orchard. But a lot of what we see is more like a fruitcake. Orchard grows fruit. A fruitcake displays fruit, and once it's baked, or whatever you do to a fruitcake, it can sit on the shelf forever. The gospel is more about growth than something on display. And Paul prays that the faith in God, the love for God and one another, and the hope in the life to come that comes from the gospel would continue to bear fruit in their city. This is his passionate prayer for them. It should be every leader's prayer over those they lead and your prayer for those that you lead, that fruit would come from those lives. Now he drills down with more specificity. I can't say that word. And he wants three things in their lives. Verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So he prays three things. First thing he prays, they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That they would know what God wants and what God is doing. They would wake up in the morning and say, God, what are you doing on the earth and how can I be a part of it? God is not vested in keeping you in the dark. Now, I say that fully aware of the irony that I don't know as a family what our next step is ministry-wise. I don't know what we're going to do next, but I know this. God eagerly desires to reveal it. I know that. If I want to know His will, I work on my spiritual wisdom and my understanding, and I will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Paul tells us that as he prays, he is teaching. He goes on to pray and say, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So the first thing he tells them is they can be filled with the knowledge of God's will. The second thing he tells them in praying is that being filled with the knowledge of his will would result in a life worthy of the Lord, and that worthy life would bear fruit. Have you ever thought about the worth of your life? Now, I don't mean in a... Um, in a uh, it's a wonderful life kind of kind of retrospect. Well, you go, well, if I hadn't have been born, this and this. No, I mean how you're living. Like the are you living to a standard that is the standard that you want to be known as as meeting. Now I have five daughters, and I am training my daughters, which is easy now because they're little. They're 13, 11, 11, 11, and seven. I did not stutter. Three 11 year olds, and I always tease them. I always tell them, uh, girls, what do we say when the boys say hello? And their mantra for them to repeat to me uh, when I say, what do you say when the boys say hello, is the girls repeat, you're not worthy. Now, I'm concerned about Cadence, the seven-year-old, because when I ask her, what do you say when the boys say hello, she ignores my coaching and says, hello, boys. Now, someday a boy will appear, and by the nature of his life, he will be worthy. He'll be a good fit for one of my daughters. 
But there will be some who will appear who have not lived their lives in a manner as to be worthy. And they're going to go and need to go away and grow up or maybe just go away. I don't know. Where did we get the idea that Jesus could make us right with God and we didn't need to, in turn, then live a life worthy of what he has called us to do? That's where the fruit is. Not a call to perfection, but it's a call to wholeheartedness. Last week, Corey Asbury released a new song called The Father's House. There's a great line in it that says, You never wanted perfect, you just wanted my heart. And the story isn't over if the story isn't good. God does not expect you to be perfect, but he does want your heart. And to kind of follow Jesus is an existence most miserable among men. You want to follow him wholeheartedly. And in following him wholeheartedly, you are living a life that is worthy of the calling that he's issued on your life. Some of you are falling far short of the calling on your life, and you know it. There are things in you, things that have been spoken over you, uh, desires in your heart, and you are in no position uh, to bear the weight of those responsibilities right now because you've made certain choices along the line, and you've not lived with a wholehearted approach to the Lord. He said, you give me your wholeheartedness, and I'll call that worthy, and we'll go from there. Verse 11, Paul continues to pray, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He tells them in praying that we would be filled with great strength and endurance and joy. We all want awards, don't we? We think the awards we win are going to matter in the long term. Now, I don't want to brag, but I will. I was on the championship livestock judging team of the Valley Sinti Winter Show in 1983. Championship livestock judging team. Some of you don't even know what that is. I would explain it, but this would get very long. Basically, you just choose which are the better cows. That's the short version of it. But I was on the championship team in 1983, and you know what? Nobody cares. Like, nobody cares. It's gone. Even when the awards seem significant, they're not. You know, Sunday... We heard the news about losing Kobe Bryant. Five-time NBA champion, seven NBA final appearances, twice was an NBA finals MVP. Once he was the NBA most valuable player. Twice scoring champion, and 18 times an NBA all-star. Does anybody who was close to Kobe Bryant care about those numbers right now? No. Nobody cares. Why? Because accolades mean nothing when they are compared to longevity and endurance. My livestock judging trophies mean nothing. At the end of life, neither does an NBA MVP award. How Kobe lived his life is what people are talking about and what makes the impact on them, the kind of father he was. We want accolades, or we think we do. What we really need is endurance. Because the awards that you win today are going to be tarnished tomorrow. And Paul prays over the church of Colossae, not accolades, not awards, but strength to endure and to last. And that is my prayer for you. Paul closes with a real prayerful reflection. He says, giving thanks to the Father, this is verse 12 and 13, who who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered from us, us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul prays and teaches. Everything 
changes when you say yes to Jesus. Maybe not circumstances, although that can be true, but destiny and hope become things that live inside of you, and you begin to live life worthy of the calling that He has put on your life. People you come into contact with this week have mostly everything they need except for what they need. Three cars, a boat, 401k, but not an ounce of hope. The gospel delivers on that elusive thing that we cannot give ourselves, that through faith in Jesus expressed in love for God and others, there is hope for life eternal. Next week, we're going to continue and talk about the supremacy of Christ in the latter part of that chapter. But right now and for the rest of the week, I would encourage you, pray that God strengthens you, fills you with the knowledge of his will, and gives you a heart to endure. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next week on the third cup of coffee.